Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Acts chapter 7. This is part B, the second part of Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. I'm going to cover verses 17 through 34 in this audio. Our context is Stephen is before the Sanhedrin, having been dragged there and accused of speaking against God and Moses, blaspheming, accused of saying he was going to tear down the temple, accused of being against the law of Moses, all of which was a bunch of utter nonsense. So Stephen is defending himself, and his point is he's trying to show how the Jews have always treated badly the messengers of God. And in this particular section of his defense, he's going to point out how badly the Jews treated Moses, a messenger of God. And so we're in the story of Moses, starting with verse 17. At the time, as the time was drawing near to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt. That time, of course, was Abraham's 430 years of sojourning in the wilderness, or 400 years, and that's a rip-roaring theological problem, which I mentioned in the last audio, and I don't want to get into it again here. It's sort of a theological chestnut, if you will. Everybody likes to talk about this. It's a difficult problem. But at any rate, the time was over. Abraham sojourning in Canaan and then his descendants sojourning in Canaan and in Israel was 430 years. The time was over. And now the time was drawing near to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham. What promise? The promise of land as well as offspring and blessing but a promise of land, and so now the time was for the promised land to be given to the Jews, and, it, and as we're near the time of the Exodus, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt, Stephen says in verse 17. Now it's interesting, they were slaves, but they flourished and multiplied despite the fact that they were in slavery. Now this might show that slavery might not have been too onerous, the Egyptian slavery might not have been too onerous at first, or it could just show that God blessed his people even when they were in slavery. And application point is, even if the leftist antichrist progressive take over the government as well as the culture, they've already taken over the culture, the government's going to fall next if things continue in their current depressing trajectory. Even if they take over and they try to enslave us as Christians, we're still going to flourish and we're still going to multiply. The Chinese government, the Chinese communist has learned that. Christians everywhere are flourishing and multiply to fight, despite the fact the government's tried to put them in slavery. Well, the famous promise, the promise that God made to Abraham, they're everywhere in Genesis. I'll just read you one, Genesis 15:13. This is the land promise. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Actually, that's not the promise. That's the prophecy that they will be enslaved for 400 years. And by the way, that 400 years is either a round number, as some scholars say, as some scholars say, no, it starts when... It's the offspring of Abraham were in were sojourning, were enslaved and oppressed, not all the way in Egypt, but also in Canaan. And that starts with Isaac, Abraham's offspring, and they add it up, and they get 400 years, although some people even question the 400 years. It's, like I said, it's a big theological problem. But at any rate, this is the time where they are. The people flourished and multiplied in Egypt. They went down with, only started out with 75 people, according to the Septuagint. The Masoretic text has 70. Just a few people were in Egypt when they went down. When Jacob, uh, excuse me, when uh, Joseph, well, when Jacob went down after being invited by Joseph. And that mere 70 or 75 people multiplied to a multitude. 
600,000 people left Israel, 600,000 men left Israel, you add the women and children, you got about 2 million or so people dis- dispute the big numbers there. But there was a whole heap of folks, a whole heap of Hebrews leaving Egypt, leaving slavery for the leaving slavery for the promised land. Acts 7 verses 18 through 19 until a different king. Well, let me go back and read the end of verse 17. The people flourished and multiplied in Egypt in verse 18 until a different king who did not know Joseph, Joseph ruled over Egypt. So time has gone by. The people have multiplied from 70 to 600,000. The kings rolled over. And, of course, that king, the new king, doesn't know Joseph. He was kind of, I forgot the details, but that happens a lot. You know, people fall out of political favor. Joseph, after all, was just a minister of the Egyptian government, and ministers can fall out of favor. Stephen continues, he, God dealt, excuse me, he, the different king, the different pharaoh. And by the way, nobody knows who that different king is. The NIV study Bible says it's probably Amos, who was the founder of the 18th dynasty of Egypt, the one who, the famous king who expelled the Hyksos, but that's highly disputed. I don't know. Nobody knows. So this different king comes in charge, and this king doesn't know Joseph. And this king dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors. Joseph, of course, was highly favored because he, saw, he saved the Egyptians from catastrophe with his famine relief management. But then time goes on. People don't remember Joseph. How soon they forget. And now the pharaohs are oppressing the Jews who lived in the northern, northeastern part of Egypt, up there in the land of Goshen, on the part of Egypt that's next to Israel. And this other king, this other, this different pharaoh, who dealt, dwelt, who dealt deceitfully with the Israelites, he made them leave their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. In other words, he told them, you're gonna, we're going to kill you, kill your offspring, you know the story. And so we go to verse 20. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. When was that? Well, if, Moses, if I use the traditional date of Exodus, which is 1450-something, I forgot exact, the exact number, Moses probably left when he was 80 or so, so that puts it back at uh, in the late 13, late 14th century B.C., 1370s or so is about where we are. He was born. He was beautiful in God's sight. The NIV, instead of beautiful, has he was no ordinary child. I guess they don't like to call male babies beautiful. The NIV margin says that Moses was fair in the sight of God. Whatever. We'll just put some kind of good adjective on Moses here. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. His father, of course, was named Amrad. Jochebed was his mother. We know that from Exodus 6, verse 20. So Moses was cared for for three months in his father's home during this time of Israel's deep slavery and degradation. Verse 21, And when he, Moses, was left outside, he was left outside in the water in the basket with pitch, if you remember, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own. The verse that shows where he was left is Exodus 2, 3. But when she could no longer hide him, as Jochebed, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. The daughter of the Pharaoh comes, sees the baby, takes him home. The, the daughter is not named in scripture. Josephus calls her Thermuthis. Thermuth, excuse me. Yeah, Thermuthis, I guess is how you would pronounce that. So we're going to go with Thermuthis. And the story, if you recall... Miriam, the sister of Moses, observed the Muthesis dragging Moses out of the water, perceived the inclination of Pharaoh's daughter to take care of the child, went to Thermuthis and said, Look, I'll get you a Hebrew nurse to nurse the child. Thermuthis agrees. 
And then Miriam goes back and gets Jochebed, Moses and Miriam's mother, and Jochebed was hired by Thamusis to nurse her own baby Moses. Great story. When the baby was grown up, Jochebed brought the baby to Thamuthis, and Thamusis adopted that baby as her own son. And as a result, we go on in Acts 7, verse 22, so Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Why? Because he was adopted by Thamuthis. And Moses was, and he was powerful in his speech and actions. Now, the Old Testament does not explicitly say that Moses was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians, but that would be naturally expected because, after all, he grew up Pharaoh's daughter, and they always educate the royalty with their personal homeschooling there in the palace. Philo and Josephus speak of Moses' great learning, even though Moses doesn't in the scriptures. And so Stephen might have read Philo and Josephus. He was Jewish, after all. He might have been familiar with that. So he might be quoting Jewish tradition here. Moses was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech. The problem with that is, is that Moses is famous for letting Aaron speak for himself because Moses couldn't speak well. We see in Exodus 4.10 this, But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently since you have been speaking to your servant, because I am slow and hesitant in speech. How do you reconcile that with this verse in Acts 7.22, that Moses was powerful in his speech? It's very simple. The content of his speech was good, but his delivery was bad. This reminds me of an editor of the American Spectator, which recently went broke, it was a political magazine 20, 30, 40 years ago, a long time ago when I was reading politics, and its editor was R. Emmett Tyrell, and the guy was so funny. I remember an article I read years ago in which he referred to Adolf Hitler as that late German reformer. <laughs> so, you know, he had to, he just, and of course, what he did by doing that was he, he cast some shade upon his liberal opponents who, who loved to call themselves reformers, but he didn't directly call them Nazis, which of course would have been a no-no. So he's very clever with his speech, and his articles were funny, deep, incisive. So one time I saw he was going to be on TV in a roundtable discussion. I said, oh, I can't wait to hear this guy. He was terrible. He couldn't speak. I don't think he's ever been on TV since then because I've never seen him. He just could not speak. He, he couldn't put one word in front of another. He was slow, clumsy, and so forth. So how can you be powerful in speech but not have a good speaking voice? It's very easy. It's what Moses said that was powerful, not necessarily how he said it. We go to verse, well, first of all, he's not only powerful in speech, but he's also powerful in his actions. What kind of actions? He was a government minister, as John Gill points out. He was a military leader. As Of course, he had to carry Israel through the desert and fight off all the Amalekites and everybody else that attacked him. So he was a military leader. Not to mention he was a judge. He judged a lot of stuff. He set up a government. He worked miracles there at the end of his career, right before the Exodus, while he was still in Egypt. You recall his standing before the Pharaoh and making sticks turn into snakes and that kind of thing. So, yeah, he was powerful in his actions. Acts 7.23, as he was approaching the age of 40, Moses, he decided to visit his brothers, the Israelites. Of course, the Israelites were in slaves, and Moses is in the palace. Big difference. Now, the age of 40 is not mentioned in the Old Testament. I assume it's not. I don't. I, I don't think it is. But it was a, definitely a Jewish tradition, as the NIV Study Bible. So Stephen follows that Jewish tradition. It's easy to remember 40-year milestones in Moses's life. He was 40 years old when he decided to go visit his brothers from the palace. 
He was 80 years old when, his, when he was sent to speak with Pharaoh about letting the people go. And then he was 120 years old when he died. 40, 80, 120 all right, so he goes to visit his brothers, the Israelites, Acts 7:24. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. Let's get a fuller account from where Stephen is quoted in Exodus 2:11 and 12. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. Jameson Fawcett and Brown said that Moses probably went further in the heat of his indignation than he probably intended. Well, whatever, he killed somebody, and I don't think this was a just killing. I mean, he could have grabbed the oppressive Egyptian and beaten the mud out of him or something and let him go and told the Hebrew slave to scram. So I don't think he did what was a just thing to do, and it was especially obnoxious for an Egyptian official to do this. Acts 7.25, he, Moses, assumed his brothers would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So Moses, he's like that traditional leader that leaps over the ramparts and says, charge, and turns around and sees that all of his troops are still in the trenches. They haven't followed him into the battle. So instead of following Moses and uh, so that he could give them deliverance, something bad happens, as we'll see in the next uh, couple of verses when a Hebrew person mentions Moses' unfortunate killing of that Hebrew, I'm tempted to say murder, of that Hebrew overseer. Well, why did Moses assume his brothers would understand that Moses was the deliverer? Well, he has a high position in Egypt. He has a lot of authority. He was miraculously preserved at his birth and adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. Obviously, God's behind all this. Gil says there was a promise of God that Moses would visit them and save them. I don't know what promise Gil is referring to there, but at any rate, there was enough in Moses' life where people should, normally you would think would support Moses as the deliverer from Egypt. Now, but you got to remember, they're slaves. They have a slave mentality. They don't know how to fight. They're not there. They don't have any military skill. They're oppressed, and it's real hard for people like that to really believe that, that somebody's going to get them out of their mess. And not only that, I don't know how much of Moses' story was actually known to the people. But at any rate, Moses thought he probably had too high of an opinion of himself. I'm going to be the deliverer because God's called me to deliver the people. He's got 40 more years in the Midian Desert before he actually does lead his people out. And application point here, if God's called you to do something, don't be too cocky about doing it at first. You've got to get your flesh dealt with first. You've got to learn what it means to be humble. You need to... Learn what it means to rely on God's power, not your own power. You might have to be put into the desert for a while. says God burns the conceit out of you. Oh, but I'm a humble person. No, you think you might be humble compared to your non-Christian friends, but compared to how humble God wants you to be, you probably hadn't even begun to be humble enough. And so Moses, he had to go through 40 years in the Midian Desert. Well, how did that happen? We go to verse 26, 7, and 8. In Acts 7, the next day he, Moses, showed up while they were fighting. That's two Hebrew brothers. They were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Now, this is two things that happened here. First of all, we see that people do not accept Moses as a leader. Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Well, actually, God had, but... Wasn't time yet. So people are not receiving Moses' uh, 
del- delivery ship. What's the word? Mo- Moses, um, they're not receiving Moses as a deliverer from their bondage. And, of course, Paul, Stephen is trying to make the, the parallel with Jesus. You Jews are not accepting Jesus as your deliverer, just as the ancient Jews in Egypt didn't accept Moses as their deliverer. And they are, and back then they said to Moses, who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us, just like you current Jews in the Sanhedrin are saying to Jesus, who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Parallels are pretty clear. That was the first thing that this story shows is that the Jews were not accepting Moses as a deliverer. And the second thing it shows is that now Moses realized that the word's out and he's going to be in trouble. Verse 28, do you want to kill me, say the two, say the uh, neighbor, the arrogant Hebrew, one of the ones that was fighting? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So the day before, Moses had killed that Egyptian, buried him in the sand, and somebody found out about it. And that's not surprising. It's kind of hard to kill somebody and bury him without somebody knowing. Let's read this, the passage that Stephen is quoting from in Exodus 2, 13 through 14. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you t- attacking your neighbor? You notice the one that com- that outed him and said, Hey, did you killed the Egyptian yesterday. He was the one that was in the wrong. He was the one that had started the fight. And he said, Who made you a leader and judge over us? The man replied, Are you planning to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, What I did is certainly known. So Stephen doesn't quote the part in Exodus that points out that Moses realizes he's in trouble now. The Egyptians are going to find out what I did. And I'm a big shot Egyptian, but that doesn't matter. I'm in the palace. I'm an official, but I killed a fellow Egyptian. People are going to be heap mad about that. There's another application point here. You know, you got two people that are fighting. Two brethren, men, you are brothers, as, as Moses said. Two brethren, you, and they're fighting. And you say, well, I, you know, brothers, you ought not to be fighting. And all of a sudden, the one of them that's in the wrong turns on you and says, stay out of this. It's none of your business. Well, notice if he's in the wrong about start having a fight with his brother, he's not going to be worried too much about being in the wrong when he has a fight with you. I like that proverb that says, the person who involves himself in a fight with uh, involving other people is like the person who holds up a dog by his ears. Dogs are not going to be too happy. Dogs are likely to bite you. If you're going to get into controversy, do it very sparingly and only as a last resort, and then use all the other safeguards, bring a brother with you, bring two brothers with you, then... Take it before the church. Make sure it's not just you and somebody else because they're likely to turn on you. We go to verse 29 in Acts 7. At this disclosure, the disclosure that the two men knew that Moses had killed somebody yesterday, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he fathered two sons. Now the land of Midian is right across the Suez Gulf into the Sinai Peninsula and then you cross the Gulf of Aqaba on the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula, and you end up in the land of Midian. Actually, the land of Midian is on both sides of the Gulf of Aqaba. This is a key piece of geography right at the southeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. That Egyptian desert there, the Nabataean Desert, I think it's called, uh, that runs up against the Sea of Galilee, it runs down to a point, and the point is surrounded on the west by the Suez, the Gulf of Suez, and on the east by the Gulf of Aqaba. If you go to the east and right at the southern part, southern central part is Mount Sinai, where God, where Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. You go a little bit further east, you hit the Gulf of Aqaba, and that's and the land of Midian is there on the eastern side, south on the eastern side, and the southeastern side of Mount Sinai. 
and then you go further east across the Gulf of Aqaba, and you end up in Midian, present-day Jordan, and you're still in the land of Midian. I've actually been there. I stayed in a hotel right at the tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, so I know what it looks like. There are cliffs all along the Gulf of Aqaba on the Jordan side, on the east side, and it's pretty rugged, mountainous, desert-type country. I remember that trip well because I woke up and saw some erratic vapor trails in the sky that were crossing each other. Tour guide came and picked us up at the hotel. He says, you see those vapor trails in the sky? I said, yeah. He said, could they be a jet airplane? I said, I don't think so. A jet airplane can't make sharp, erratic, right-angle turns like that. He said, you're right. There were terrorist missiles that were that the Egyptians last night had shot into the uh, part of Israel that, that, that runs down to a point right there at Eilat, right on the tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. And, of course, the Sinai Desert belongs to Egypt now. And some terrorists had gotten over there in Egypt and tried to fire the, the missiles into Israel. And the missiles, missiles overshot the mark, went over the mountains on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is Midian, and landed in the Jordan Desert over there. So I know where Midian is. And then the tour guide said, let's get out of here. I said, amen, brother. Put the foot on the gas. Get me out of here. All right, so let's quote some. Let's read some from Exodus 2.15, where Stephen is quoting from when Pharaoh heard about this, the killing of the Egyptian by Moses. The Pharaoh tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. And you know the story. He married uh, Jephthah's daughter and had two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. I don't need to read that. That's, that's just Old Testament history. And so he lives there for 40 years, has, has a wife. What was his wife's name? He had two wives. They had Keturah and I cannot remember. But anyway, we go to Acts 7, verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. Ah, the famous burning bush story happened right there at Mount Sinai. As I said, Mount Sinai is right on the edge of the, of the Midian Desert, so that's where he was living at the time. He was 40 years old when he killed the Egyptian, and shortly thereafter, after 40 years had passed, I say shortly thereafter, after 40 years had passed, that, that puts us up to 80 years, up to where Moses is 80 years old. So that gives you an idea of how old Moses was when he started the Exodus, 80 years old. And we think that, oh, I'm too old to do anything. Moses didn't start really till he got to be 80. He was 40 when he killed the Egyptian, Acts 7:23, as he was approaching the age of 40. That's what Stephen says. I assume he's right. And then we got 40 years of this verse in Midian. So now he's 80 years old. And Exodus 7, 7 says this, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So you see right around this time, he's about to speak to Pharaoh because he has a message from an angel in the flame of a burning bush. Now, who was this angel? Angel of the Lord is, is cited in Exodus and also quoted by Stephen in Acts 7 here. That's... Exodus 3, 2, where Moses says it's the angel of God, angel of the Lord in the burning bush, speaking, who is this angel? John Gill just says it's God in general, more specifically it's Jesus. Many times the word angel of the Lord refers to Jesus in the Old Testament, at least that's the opinion of many, many, many Old Testament scholars, and I've become convinced, even though you can't really prove it, it just seems like the epiphanies that happened in the Old Testament were Jesus, and they're called angels a lot of times, angels of, of the Lord. Matt Slick of CARM Apologetics Ministries, Christian Apologetic Resource Ministries, CARM, 
says this, quote, Whenever God is seen in the Old Testament, it is the pre-incarnate Christ. So we assume that Moses saw Jesus in the burning bush, and Jesus is telling Moses, head to the promised land and lead the people out. And again, the theme is, Moses was a leader of the people. Out of, he led them out of their bondage, Sanhedrin, Stephen argues. Why are you not... Why are you trying to hinder the New Testament people of God from following the new Moses, Jesus, and, and let him lead them out of the spiritual wilderness that they are in? We go to verse 31 and 32. Stephen continues, When Moses saw it, saw what? The burning bush. He was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, so Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. Now, Jesus used this famous burning bush story to prove the resurrection of the dead. In Matthew 22:32, he says this, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus here in Matthew 22:32 is quoting the words of Moses to the Sadducees to prove to them that the resurrection of the dead indeed is true. And that's why Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are still living. Because they're alive. Because God is the God of the live people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So even though they have died physically a long time ago, they're living now. And of course, the implication of that is they're going to be raised from the dead. Now, Stephen adds this little point about Moses at the burning bush. Stephen says, Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. That little detail was added. Stephen had this by tradition. As John Gill said, it wasn't in Exodus. The author of Hebrews also had it by tradition, as John Gill says, Hebrews 12:21. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Again, that's not in the Old Testament, but tradition has it. We go to Acts 7, 33 through 34. Then the Lord said to him, said to Moses. Again, Stephen is recounting the Exodus story of Moses at the burning bush. The Lord said to Moses, to him, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, holy, of course, means separated to the Lord, separated from the world, and dedicated or consecrated to God. So that ground right there was dedicated to God, not to ordinary, profane, everyday purposes. Now, that doesn't mean it was permanently holy ground. It meant while the bush was burning and the voice was coming from the bush, that the ground was holy. And so Jesus, or God, right from the bush says to Moses, I observed the oppression of my people in Egypt. God always sees oppression. He lets it go on for a while, but he eventually judges it and vindicates those who are being unjustly oppressed. I've heard their groaning and have come down to rescue them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And so Moses is commissioned to cross back over the Gulf of Aqaba, go back through Midian, the part of Midian that's in Mount Sinai, Keep going past the Suez Gulf, get into Egypt, find out where the Pharaoh is, wherever that is. They move their capital around. Find that capital and say, let my people go. Now, the voice from the burning bush told Moses to remove his sandals because where he's standing is holy ground. You walk, when you walk, you walk on common ground, on dirt, on mire, on, on dusty roads. That's not a good symbol of holiness and separation from the world. So, the voice... God tells Moses, get rid of your nasty sandals that have been polluted by the world, because where you're standing is holy. It's, Moses took those sandals off. This was a token of his humility, his obedience, and his reverence. We're going to leave Moses there standing at the burning bush, 
At the end of this audio, we'll take it up again in the next audio as Stephen continues his defense before the Sanhedrin. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoy this one.